Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. Hi, Jeff. We have a very special guest today, Mr. Herman J. Russomano. Welcome, Mr. Russomano. Welcome. Mr. Russomano is one of the founding members of Russomano and Borello PA in downtown Miami. He has over 35 years of experience in personal injury and wrongful death, medical malpractice, class actions, product liabilities, complex commercial litigation, multi-district litigation, anything in court, pretty much. He is a board-certified civil trial lawyer by the Florida Bar and by the National Board of Trial Advocacy, where he's been certified and recertified since 1986. And he is a past president of the following organization. I'm hoping that all the attorneys in my office are listening because we always tell people, get involved in an organization, but don't just join. Well, I mean, they're not listening right now. Well, they're not listening now, but they'll listen. When they hear this, I want everyone, all the lawyers actually, (laughs) all lawyers out there should pay attention to this because Herman Russomano is a past president of the Roscoe Pound Institute, the Florida Supreme Court Historical Society, the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, the Florida Board of Trial Advocates, the Miami-Dade Justice Association, the Dade County Bar Association, the American Board of Trial Advocates, Miami Chapter, and the Florida Bar. Those are just his presidencies. I mean, you could pick any one of those and it would be impressive. He has, right? Yeah, I'm impressed by it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. He has served on countless boards, committees, organizations, including the ABA House of Delegates from 1993 to 2018. He has been an adjunct professor of law teaching ethics and trial advocacy since 1984. We are really proud to welcome Herman Russomano to this podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and Bert, for the kind invitation to appear on your podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And let me, as we start, thank you and your firm for all the work you do in the legal community. Your pro bono being a past president of our Dade Bar, your pro bono service awards, all the things you've done. Very complimentary to you and the people that are training under you to get involved as you two do. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind of you. I really appreciate that. So you've been practicing, obviously, we just heard you've been practicing in Miami, I guess, South Florida for over 35 years. Are you from Miami? How no, are you I from grew Rachel? up in New Jersey, Essex County, Newark, New Jersey, went to Rutgers University. Mm. And after law school, I was offered a clerkship for a federal judge in Mobile, Alabama. And I accepted that. What year that. was that? That was 1975, I, 76. Mobile, Alabama in 1975. And the judge I worked for, if you open up your constitutional textbooks, his name was uh, Judge Thomas. Much of what went on, what I call the very good things and and what equal rights and desegregation and so forth, he was involved in that. And it was great to be working for a judge that was into that versus another judge. Following that, I clerked on the Alabama Supreme Court for Justice Humatics. And uh, that was right across the street from the Dexter Baptist Church. And uh, another famous judge, Frank M. Johnson, who did so much for civil rights, he was there at the time. 
I was clerking for Justice Maddox. Is it Justice Maddox? Isn't one of the judges you clerked for referenced in uh, My Cousin Vinny? Right. I teach a a course (laughs) called also Real Justice, R-E-E-L. Oh, that's great. And My Cousin Vinny, which I use as an example in vignettes as to lawyers. And the one we use there, and then I'll get to the book. (laughs) The one we use there is the difference between a destructive and a constructive cross-examination. And what I mean by that, when the woman was on the witness stand who had bad eyesight, Mm -hmm. everyone loved her. And if Vinny had done a destructive cross-examination, he would have been disliked immensely. Mm. But he was sweet. He was kind. He put his fingers up. He walked toward her. And at the end, he got her to admit that she needed new glasses. Right. Now, as to the book, when the judge hands Vinny, the rules of criminal procedure on the front cover is UC Maddox. Oh, that's and true. I helped with, you know, regard to editing of it. And he so, used to say that, in fact, well, that was one of the real things in that case. But that's the judge, <laughs> U Maddox. And anytime somebody sees that, and I tell the law students, just look on the front cover. And he was the author of that. That's great. Of the <laughs> Alabama Rules of Criminal Procedure. How does a young man from New Jersey? find his way to Mobile, Alabama? Well, I wanted to have a clerkship. And my wife also is from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I met her her brother and I played football together in high school. But we wanted to go someplace in the South, Florida, Georgia. Alabama offered a scholarship. And a couple of my friends Mm -hmm. that were in New Jersey had gone there before me. Mm -hmm. And so we went there and had a great time. And I was student bar president. I became very involved and so forth. Wait a minute. I didn't, that wasn't on my list right. of presidents. <laughs> oh, There's um, probably a lot of things that weren't I, on my list. I actually wanted to ask a question about that, about your, obviously, your career service. What in your background, what in your sort of growing up led you to a life of service? Well, my dad Great was question. an attorney. He passed mm-hmm. away, though, of pancreatic cancer when I was 12. Mm-hmm. My mom Sorry. was an Italian professor and uh, also a social worker. Mm. And they were both committed to the community. My father served in the New Jersey Assembly with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt ticket in the early 30s. And I always felt I grew up in a family where you do public service. So it was part of my DNA. You know, I just can't think of anything else but to do that, as you all do, which is to your credit. And I think the mark of an outstanding attorney, and if you want to take a trial attorney, well, very good in his or her profession. How are they as a father, a son, a daughter? Mm-hmm. You know, what do they give back to their community? And how do they mentor young yeah. lawyers coming up? That's the report card I use. And I tell law students for the last 35 years, your reputation will be your greatest asset or your worst enemy. Yeah. You will be judged by your judgment. Great. And that's the mantra. And I've tried to follow it to this day. I have two sons that are attorneys in the law firm. And my two daughter-in-laws are lawyers, but with a different firm. And one of the daughter-in-laws is a tax attorney. Right. And I have four little <laughs> grandchildren, eight, nine, seven, and six. And I refer to them as trial lawyers in training. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So you started to say how you ended up in Miami from the clerkship. Right. From the clerkship, once it ended, I was offered a job with the bell system. This is when the Justice Department Mm -hmm. was attempting to dismantle AT&T. I was offered to go to Miami or Atlanta, Georgia. And 
I talked it over with my wife, and we decided Florida would be more preferred. And as it ended up, her parents moved to Florida, her two sisters and mm-hmm. and family members. And we've been here ever since 1977. And you've seen a slight bit of change since 1977. Oh, I have. From two of my mentors at the old Frady's firm, Mm -hmm. one was Judge Ray Pearson and Judge Bob Floyd. Mm -hmm. And Judge Pearson always referred to being down here as Miami. (laughs) That's the way he did it, Miami. So he was here for a while. It was true south. Right. Now it's north. That's right. We're so far south that we're a little north. So tell us the story about when we're sort of looking out uh, from here over on One Biscayne Tower. Oh, true. And tell us the story about One Biscayne Tower when you were the first tenant. Yes. The law firm at the time, Frady's Floyd Pearson, Mm -hmm. they were the first tenant in One Biscayne Tower in 1975. Wow. And the square footage for them at the time, the lease was $5 per square foot. (laughs) Wow. Wait, wait. Changed, we, have to, we have to repeat come that. Along <laughs> we have to repeat that. Five dollars a square foot. Square foot. Right. That right. was at, at that time. Much different today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that would have been at that time one of the biggest buildings. Yes, in downtown, it was a right? premier building, class A, and people thought highly about it. They had the bankers club in there for years and a lot of prestigious firms uh, came out of that building. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. How did you make the so when you came down, you were working with AT&T, right? Or yes, the Bell, Bell system. South, Bell system. But I right? also was trying defense cases, and I did have a, a case, and one of the members of the firm that I ended up going would ask at the conclusion of the trial, would you like to join the firm? So I said, oh, thank you so much. It was a Friday afternoon, and I said, I'd like to talk to my wife about it. And the attorney, the senior attorney, who was pretty accurate about wanting to have an answer, he said, well, all right, let me know Monday morning at 9 o'clock. So <laughs> I accepted. He felt he must have felt that I had the, the whole weekend to think about it, which was enough time. Right. Yeah. And you haven't looked back. I love your explanation of what you believe makes a good trial lawyer. And it's really focused on being a well-rounded individual human being. Yes. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think being a well-rounded human being really lends itself to being a good trial lawyer. The legal profession is a wonderful profession. It's not a right, it's a privilege to serve. And I've always looked at mentoring people, helping them. I've had a number of mentees, and I had some mentors. And you also want to, again, as you've been practicing for a while, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered as an individual? Mm -hmm. While we zealously defend our clients or represent our clients in both plaintiff defense. The word is your bond mantra is something I follow. I may have strong differences in the value of a case, but so far, I haven't had any lawyer say you said one thing that wasn't true. So my word is my bond. I believe that. And I think people respect that. And even lawyers that I'm against, you know, in cases, say, let's say some tort cases, I've ended up oftentimes representing some of them or their family members. And it shows the respect, the mutual respect we have for each other. And it's an important thing. And you hope the younger people today have the same opportunities. It's a changed environment, but you could always, as Chesterfield Smith said, Mm -hmm. former ABA president and Florida bar president and head of Holland and Knight at one time, he always said to people, to lawyers, do good. Mm-hmm. And he meant it. And I was fortunate enough that he spoke when I was inducted as Florida Bar President in 2000. He was my speaker. 
You know, I was at Holland and Knight when uh, Chesterfield Smith was still there. And what an inspiring yes. gentleman and lawyer and partner. Just fantastic. Oh, he was part of that great generation. And this, this is a wonderful man. So you mentioned, and I could not agree more, you mentioned that your word is your bond, right? And that to me goes to communication and communication skills and always communicating, whether it be with your client, with opposing counsel, with co-counsel. Why is that so important? How does that help? And really, how does the lack of communication really hurt that process? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Lack of communication also raises bar implication, ethical violations, But you should really, first of all, you care for your profession and you want to care for every client you Mm -hmm. interview. And I also have found that if we decide not to take a case, I'm just not a person who sends a letter. I feel if you reject a case, you need to do it with tender, loving care. I call the person. I explain it. I tell them sometimes if they want everything in writing, but I just tell them about the statutory requirements, what they need to do. I called the referring attorney. I thank her or him for the referral, even if we couldn't take it. And you want to start the line of communications right from the beginning. Our office has a procedure, which I instituted, that when somebody calls for the first time, you just don't take the message and say somebody will get back to you. You do the intake as best you can. You let them know somebody's calling back that day. And we have people trained to do that. Because for some people, their Mm -hmm. problems are so much that a few minutes is hours. A few hours are days. And some days are months. Some people desperately need to speak to counsel. And I've always been a big believer. You answer immediately. Even if you say to someone, I did get your message. Thank you. We're going to be looking at this and we'll get back to you in one or two days. But I don't want anyone to think that somehow they've called and it's sort of been filtered to some other place. It's not a way to practice law. And it's just, I always look at it, how would we like to be treated? Right, right. Yeah. right. it's the human the golden rule. Right? The golden rule. Same way. Treat right. people as you would want to be treated. Being, That's right. Being right. human, right? That's and it. Too often, I think lawyers get into this robot mode of, I have a client, I have to do this, this is what I'm going to do. It. And right. those interpersonal skills, and yeah. again, we're all for technology, but even young lawyers that we're training, there is this habit with the iPhones. Their head is down most of the time. You go into an elevator, it's down. We spend a good mm-hmm. bit of time talking about eye contact. Yeah. And it's a little bit harder today than it used to be because people are so affixed to looking down. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, my wife, who was a preschool teacher for the last 35 years, she doesn't allow any type of electronic devices at the dinner table. Right. That's uh, she so doesn't the do same it. rule we in our house, rule. too. <laughs> and actually, real as an aside, my wife and I were at dinner Saturday night at a restaurant, and we were talking, having you know, right. a very nice conversation. We looked at the table next to us, and there was a couple next to us, probably about our age, maybe a little younger, whatever. And the husband was buried in his phone almost the entire meal. Uh, right. I felt right. bad. I yes. want to give some of those people, some of those people, the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're dealing with an emergency. No, no, no. Or he was not. They're getting a kid home from he, he, he was some not. stranded or no, not somebody's in, in a hospital. Yeah, yeah. But I know yeah. exactly. The yeah, majority right. are just not. They're scrolling through whatever just, it is. I always say to my kids, "Would it be okay if I pulled out a, a magazine and just held it up and yeah. started reading that while we're having dinner? Why is it? <laughs> what's the difference? Yeah." Because they always say, oh, I'm doing whatever. Yes, I understand you're doing something. I know you're on your phone doing something. That's the point. You're not interacting with me. Even in an elevator, I I just feel awkward to get in an elevator and be on the phone. I think it's just kind of rude. There's another 
There's another human being. Interpersonal there. skills are, and people retain us by the way we speak, but how good we are, how we write, right. how we analyze. Well, there's got to be a connection too, right? Yes. As part of it, and a connection with, by the way, a connection with opposing counsel, a connection with a client, a connection with the judge, the jury, oh, the opponent, right. whatever it is. And I'm a big proponent of the phones. I mean, in our office, because many times with these emails, some people sort of go off the reservation at times the way they'll write an email, oh, which yes. they wouldn't do in a letter. Right. So our rule in the office is before you press a button, you walk around the whole office. Right. You come back. Yeah. If you then decide you still want to press that button, as long as you do not mind that email being seen by the entire world <laughs> and it's exhibit one on any type of a dispute, you send it. Right. If not, you pick up the phone and you yeah. discuss it. And, you know, sometimes you have to memorialize things, but always remain professional. Right. Civility is not a sign of weakness. It's a badge of honor. And I tell people that. And I've been fortunate. I haven't really had real disputes with lawyers because, one, you try to treat everyone with respect. Mm -hmm. And there's not a problem if people differ on issues or arguments. That's what we're trained to do. Right. But you still have no animosity. And, you know, there's a few lawyers that, need to be taken to task. But overall, <laughs> this is a good profession. Stick to it the is issues, right? right? And my line is with an email or a letter or anything is, if you don't mind it being on the front page of the paper, right. send it. It's true. You know, and I agree with you. If you type an incendiary email, you're in a place, type it, stand up. Right? right. We always talk to people, we're like, leave it, <laughs> walk away, come back, yeah. delete it. I right. actually take the person's name out of the two line. Yeah. Just so I don't, hit, don't send hit send by, right. by accident. Exactly. And I, and I usually no, will smart. write his name in there and send it to him <laughs> before to be my conscience well, before I hit it's send. it's true. You know? yeah. Talking about standing up before was an interesting thing with uh, Justice Maddox. His law clerks for the first month until we had a right any bench memoranda or anything for oral argument, mm -hmm. he had stand-up desk. We had a stand mm -hmm. to write. Of course, it told you to be brief, concise, <laughs> but, you know, later on, and I've always remembered that. Then, of course, we had our regular desk, but for the first month, he had a stand-up and write. It was a, a writing mm -hmm. desk. Very interesting because I had never done that before. That's funny. And he was ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, he was because we have stand-up desks now, and we have, uh, <laughs> and in our new space, we're going to have oh, desks that great. go up or down for everyone. It's actually I like standing up. Oh, yeah. I stand up almost the whole yeah. day now. That's true. I, I think better on my feet. Right. There's various yeah. reasons for that. So yeah. you told me once about a habit of yours. You're an avid reader, right? Yes. And you have a quite a collection of books. Can you tell us about probably, your book collection? Yeah, I probably have over three hundred. 300 books, and, right. and you've read, read all, every one of those. Because I have tons of books on my shelf yeah. here that I haven't read. Well, I have it's four like, it's that my need to, be, to read. be read, but the others I've read. And what so I started, 296, okay, yeah. we'll stick to that. And what I started <laughs> in 1961, the first book I ever received was a book from my uncle who was a physician. We were at a wedding, and it was about the New York Yankees, and Frank Graham was the author. And he bought it for me. I'm 11 years old, and he wrote an inscription. But I wrote in... When I got the book on the next page, who gave it to me, mm -hmm. when I started to read it, and when I finished. That was sort of a basic. But what I've done for all the years following is when I get a book from someone, I put who gives it to me, whether it's my wife, friends, children, when I started, and then what is going on in my life, our life as a family, from the time I start to I finish. And, you know, you forget things, but what places you visited, all the different trips, oh and— gosh. 
I've done that's that right up to the present time. And every so often I have some extra time, I'll pull a book off the shelf, I'll open it up, and I sort of relive that experience. And it's, uh, matter of fact, a good friend of mine, David Lawrence, who's everybody loves David in Lawrence, this community. Yeah. Children's Trust, And right? he always, when you meet him, he says, what book are you reading? You know, he's a very intelligent man. But he said, that was a neat idea, you know, the way I've done this for all yeah. these years. And oh. still continue to do so. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I know my wife reads a ton. Right. I read less than she does, but I still read a bunch. And we have lots of books on our shelves at home. But we don't have that. To add the history to oh. it is amazing. It's wonderful. And I only read hardbacks because I'm not that good with the kids. And if I want to make notes, so I try to do that. Sort of subscribe to I love books like you all do. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln, our, our best trial lawyer president, always stated his best, greatest gift somebody could give me is a book I ain't read. He was right. He <laughs> yeah. was right. But what a gift that you have. Uh, and I just think, you know, you mentioned your kids and your grandkids that you have 300, or give or take, slices of your life sitting on a bookshelf for them to read one day. And right. Really amazing. I love that. When you, when yeah, you told me awesome. that, I just... I'd love to adopt that if you don't mind. Can we? Are we? Are we free to borrow that practice? Uh, sure. I'm starting a little late, but oh, no, a little, a little bit. it's yeah. not late for you all. Uh, <laughs> it also is. I think it's a good incentive to read. But That's yeah, right. I just read about Harry Truman. Apparently, had a practice of when he was in the midst of a controversy, would write a letter to an adversary or something, and then not send it. But now we have this collection of letters of his yes. letters. That's actually basically a collection of his thoughts at that time. That, you know, what a unique insight to uh, somebody's mind. There's a great biography of President Truman by David McCulloch. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. David McCulloch is a great, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, your practice. Your practice now is mostly litigation, but you also do some mediation. Well, I was in the first class as a mediator, but I've only used it a few times. I've wanted to do that, be able to speak to mediators, knowing I'm certified as well. But most of my mediations, 99%, are representing a party. In a but there are, when we talk about sometimes common mistakes that lawyers do, and if I can maybe take a moment on yeah, mediation. Please. Yeah. Mediation is really, especially whether the pandemic or thereafter, is a trial. And anybody since 99.9% of cases settle at mediation or shortly thereafter. The approach to a mediation for a lawyer is not just a few days before to send a memorandum to the mediator thinking, okay, he or she, it's horrible. What you do is you start weeks ahead of time. First, you want to know the mediator. You want to know the background. It's like jury selection because I want to know if somebody works for a carrier and they've done a, a thousand cases and this may be the first or second case, I'm not questioning their motives but I just like to know. It's like selecting right. a jury. You're understanding then, their frame yeah. of mind. And then the next thing is, what's your pre-mediation strategy? I speak to the mediator way ahead of time. I encourage the mediator, and the good ones do so. They're going to call the other side. They're going to ask us. I said, I want to hear your tough questions. What are the PowerPoints? I call the other lawyers. I always do that. I'll say, look, we have this mediation coming. Is there anything that troubled you other than saying, well, your case or you're asking for too much money? <laughs> but what are the points that you want to cover? I'd like to be able to advise my client, get it to you. Is there anything you're missing? You make a demand well ahead of time. Having been a corporate counsel for the bill system, you know, people have to run things up the flagpole. 
but you want to make sure you give them that opportunity because it's embarrassing and it's an easy way for the other side to say, look, you just surprised us. We never knew you were seeking this type of money. Right. So that's bad for your client. It's bad for the profession. And you really want to get that out there. You want to make sure that they know. And uh, we talked about the demand. Oftentimes, I question a mediator whether opening statements are preferred. Sometimes it's a caustic atmosphere. You may start just with negotiations. <laughs> and uh, you also have to have a good mediator who knows how to control the situation. Believe it or not, I represented a lawyer up in the Stewart area who was at a mediation. The mediator for me was totally not with it. And as the plaintiff attorney is presenting his argument, defense attorney gets up and interrupts. This is a mediation. Hmm. Instead of the mediator immediately taking a break, right. going outside and reading the riot act to them, shouldn't do anything. It happens again. The third time it happened, and this is where the client was wrong, he grabs the attorney, the defense oh attorney, oh and boy. pulls it forward. Oh, Should have never okay, done yeah. that. I'm yeah. representing Agreed. the puller. Yeah. So, you weren't yeah. at this mediation. This oh, is no, no. Fact, right. You're coming but in anyway, after the fact. The right? defense attorney <laughs> then walks out, comes back 10 minutes later, closes his briefcase, and walks away. Oh, whoa. So files a bar complaint and so forth. And I happen to know both of these lawyers. So as the case is proceeding... I'm now doing my due diligence for the lawyer that did the pulling to take the other side's deposition, the lawyer. So I sit with him and I says, look, sit in my office for five minutes. You're claiming you have severe back pain as a result of your tie being pulled. And I know you've had three or four surgeries to your low back. Do you want me to get into all of that versus just accepting a letter of apology? And by the way, your conduct wasn't good and you want to end this? He thought about it. He said, yes. Imagine he was trying to turn, was turn something that right. way in. But again, you have to conduct yourself properly. That, right. of course, was a, an extreme, extreme example. example but sure, yeah. you don't do things like that. So the mediation is important. You also want to make sure what's really important is not only who's at the mediation, but who's not there mm. that needs to be there. Good point. And you want that certification of mediation. I mean, this is our trial. Who's that's, kidding that's a great who? point. And you have to really prepare. You know, you do not want the mediator to come in unprepared because we didn't do enough to get you there. And if right. the person had everything and didn't do it, well, you just don't use that person again. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an excellent point. And I think you're right that a lot of lawyers take that mediation step for granted or just view it as an obstacle. Right. That uh, the court's important, you know, or ordering us to do this, so let's just do it. And they don't do any preparation. Maybe they might prepare a, a brief statement that they extracted from one of the pleadings that the mediator is going to read anyways. And then at the mediation, their opening statement is the same recitation of the same right. facts that are set forth in their letter. And I think you're 100% right. A lot of people take and it And the granted. other thing I take two or three minutes in the beginning, and I want all the people to know that, and I cover this with my clients, uh, that you know we're here to roll up our sleeves, work as hard as we can to reach a fair, reasonable, and if I have the permission, confidential settlement. That's what we do. And then if there are what I call, how do you avoid pitfalls? Hmm. And by the preparation, the skill of the people, are they board-certified attorneys? How many cases have they worked in the past? You know, you want to have that rapport, you know, the demand made timely, being cooperative in hmm. discovery. Right. All the things that should be done 
So this way, you know, you've done your checklist. You've done your due yeah. diligence. Now, does every case settle using that formula? No, but Almost, we've been yeah. pr- fortunate. I mean, the overwhelming majority of our cases settle at mediation. They really do. Well, to give it the best chance to settle, right? So right. just like anything we do, a hearing, a deposition, you have to put the work in before. Oh, you're so right. Right, the mediation in order to get there right. to see if it can work. You're absolutely right. And I've always been a believer that you never want to be outworked. You know, I have a sports <laughs> background and my feeling is you leave it all on the field or you leave it all in the courtroom or the mediation room. You always want to feel that way because you're not going to win all the time. But you really you do did it. your best. And right. uh, it's important to me. And, you know, I used to have the example. I wrestled a lot in college, high school. But there was a, an Olympic wrestler, Dan Gables, who one time he was speaking from Iowa, four-time NCAA champ, gold medal winner. And many times, as he said, he would jump out of bed three or four o'clock in the morning and do several sets of 100 push-ups. And people ask, well, why would you be getting up at that time? He says, because my opponent in Russia is already training. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, you follow that mantra. I believe in yeah. preparation. Louis Neiser, a great trial and appellate lawyer, both criminal and civil, who's been passed away for many years out of New York. He wrote My Life in Court, which is a book I have right. written in 1924. But one time when I was Barbara, I invited him. And this was when I was chairman. It was a mid-year meeting. And I picked him up at the airport. And he gave me this nice book. And he said to me, he says, well, I know this counsel because you're a trial lawyer. He says, but the facts of a case never fly in through the window. <laughs> they have to be dragged in by the heel. <laughs> and that's the truth. Yeah. Well, that to me, that circles back to, you know, what you were talking about before about the importance of being well-rounded. Because what we do is tell stories. Right. And there are humans involved in those stories, and you have to have an understanding and appreciation and a sensitivity and empathy for humans and human interactions and the way we respond to not just lawyer to lawyer, but client to client. We always forget there's people involved here. You're correct, Jeff, and I want to compliment you both, too, because the podcast approach, I think, is a great educational tool for storytelling. Yeah. It really is. It's a great tool that you've developed. For storytelling. And look how many people today do that uh, to further their education. We all learn from each other. Right. So how can we take that, which is clearly you have your duty of service back to the profession, to the community. How do we pass that on? And we try here as well. But how do we make sure that the next generation, right? Yes, uh, it's a challenge. But, you know, you... First of all, mentorship is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've mentored so many people, and I sit down, and I try to say to them, even at commencement ceremonies, which I'll be at one tomorrow as the chair emeritus at St. Thomas School of Law, but when I chair the board of trustees and others, I tell the students too, write either on the back of your diploma, your five-year plan. Well, I said first year three, your five-year plan, and your 10-year plan, and put it in writing. Don't just talk about it. And each year you go back and you look to see what's been accomplished and, you know, really try to put your heart into it and make sure that you're always going to be giving back to the profession because what goes around comes around. (laughs) And I seldom do not answer a lawyer's question. I don't mean if we're involved against them or so, but somebody calls me, I call them back. But I've been fortunate when I call people, they pick up the phone. (laughs) But, you you know, you showed it. 
We have yeah, to pay yeah. it forward, right? That's um, right. And we have to do the best we can to communicate with the next generation to hopefully have them come up and do what, for example, you've done for the profession and the service back to not just, again, the profession, but the community as well. Right. And I think people see that. Even judges recognize that. You know, the judges are going to be fair. But, you know, if they see a person who's put got another way, I mean, I at one time when the building was being discussed uh, before the commission, believe it or not, I had a five-disc courthouse. You mean courthouse, courthouse, new courthouse. I had a five-disc neck fusion two days before. And I left the hospital, and I was going to be discharged later that day with one of these umbrella braces around my neck. And I testified in front of the commission and Judge Bailey kids me and Judge Soto and others <laughs> that this guy came out of the hospital <laughs> to testify, which was true. Wow. Which was true. Yeah. You know, well, you, you do the best you can. Your commitment is impressive. The yeah. example you set, I truly, truly thank you from the bottom of my heart for the example that you set for us. It's really inspiring. It really well, is. And I, I only wish you had more kids because they're all lawyers. So I think the more Russomanos, <laughs> more Russomanos we have around there, the profession. Exactly. Right. I, we exactly. know, you know, we obviously we know your sons very well. Well, there's we the do. next generation, the grandkids, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's at true. least I, we know there's the message will will go on. Thank you so much for being on here. I, I feel like we, you know, Brett and I had a list of questions and we didn't, we barely scratched the surface today. So yeah. we're going to ask you to come back again. Well, I'd uh, be honored to come back. I thank you for what you're doing because this is a, a service that you provide to attorneys and others. And to be complimented for it. Thank you. We, you know, truly we do it because we enjoy it and we get, it gives us an opportunity to talk to people like you. So thank you for being here. If you're listening to this podcast and you like to, please give us a five-star review, follow us, share us with your friends and family, and we will see you next time. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.